0: Welcome to the PEDS NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence Based Practice, Episode 6. Shots, 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 shots. No, this podcast is not what you think it's about. I'm your host, Becky Carson. Join us today as we talk through the tough discussion with vaccine hesitant parents. A disclaimer before I get started. I support the use of vaccines in children and stand with the policy statements of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. My goal in today's podcast is not to perpetuate the political argument over vaccines or villainize anti-vaccine supporters, but to provide knowledge and information to healthcare providers in how to understand the underlying issue and how to talk with vaccine-hesitant parents about the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Okay. Now for our show. I was recently having a dinner conversation with my husband and a friend about all kinds of adult things, health insurance, vaccines, differential diagnoses, COVID-19, you know, light, easy conversation topics. And then I made the statement that I would have no idea how to identify polio if I needed to. I admitted that I would definitely miss the diagnosis. I mean... I've seen the aftermath of polio in Africa where children were crippled by poliomyelitis. That's the same post-infectious sequelae that put FDR in a wheelchair until we introduced the polio vaccine in the United States in the 1950s. So I also knew that polio was a fecal oral transmission because the oral polio vaccine is prevalent in many developing countries. And my dad used to talk about how when He was growing up in the 1950s. The swimming pool was a scary place, and it was a breeding ground for the virus, so he wasn't allowed to go there in the summertime. He was afraid of having to be put in an iron lung. Sidebar with some really great news, as of August 25th, 2020, Africa was listed as wild polio virus free, according to the CDC. Polio, unfortunately, still exists in Afghanistan and Pakistan. But back to our discussion, did I really know how polio might present? No, it would never even make it to my differential diagnosis. Why would I need to? It had been nearly eradicated. Deaths from polio worldwide have dropped by 99% since 1988. Only 22 were reported in 2017 and more than 16 million people have been saved from paralysis according to the World Health Organization. So I started thinking about other vaccine-preventable diseases. I've seen chicken pox once in my career in 2019 in a child who was too young for the vaccine. So one patient in the last 12 years in pediatrics where I've cared for thousands of children's, one patient when we used to have pox parties to share the disease. My mom made me go play with my brother when he got it. But then I circled back in my brain to all the vaccine-hesitant or vaccine-refusing parents I encounter and realized that all it would take is a contagiously toxic attitude towards vaccines to send a community backwards 70 years. And I thought about COVID-19 and the vaccine we expect to come down a pipeline in the next few months when it typically takes a decade to safely make a vaccine. How are we going to have the COVID vaccine discussion with hesitant parents? Is it safe enough for me to have? More importantly, my child? And then I wondered, am I vaccine hesitant? Stay tuned as we discuss this hot topic, how we got here and what you can and should do about it. Why does vaccine hesitancy matter? If a few vaccine-hesitant parents refuse immunizations for their kids, then herd immunity drops below the critical level and we see a rise in epidemics. Depending on the disease, the vaccine rate to maintain herd immunity changes. First, let's define vaccine hesitancy. Vaccine hesitancy has been characterized recently by a committee at the World Health Organization as, quote, a behavior influenced by a number of factors, including issues of confidence, i.e. a patient or parent does not trust a vaccine or a provider, complacency, meaning the patient or parent do not perceive a need for a vaccine or do not value the vaccine, and convenience or access to care. And then there are three types of varying indecision. One, patient or families may accept all vaccines, but remain concerned about them. Two, they may refuse or delay some vaccines, but accept others. Or three, they may refuse all vaccines. There was a study conducted in 2010 that was a national telephone survey of 1,500 parents of children ages 6 to 23 months in age that had a response rate of 46%. In which approximately 3% of respondents had refused all vaccines and 19.4% had refused or delayed at least one of the recommended childhood vaccines. It's not a lot, and this is an old study, but when we have a goal of a 95% vaccination rate for some of these diseases, an increase in a few vaccine refusals in a community can mean the difference between safety and epidemics. I've had the privilege of working in a variety of settings, either during my training or through a number of jobs, and in each of the places, I encountered vaccine-hesitant parents. I've seen organically-minded environmental activist parents who want to stay as natural as possible for their children. I've met parents who wanted different schedules of vaccines because they didn't like their child crying at how many shots they were given in one day. And most recently, I've anecdotally and locally noticed a surge in urban, low-health literacy parents who refuse vaccines. This one was the most surprising to me, and I always had the suspicion that social media played a role in it. After all, some people might view their Facebook news feed as reliable news. My suspicions were validated when I saw the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, which explained algorithms used in social media to propagate user attention and suggest the next item to view. So an anti-vaxxer is more likely to get additional material on the movement rather than a push for something in the opposite direction in order to have them stay on the app, view more feeds, and get increased advertiser revenue. Because they are in search of the user's attention, And who doesn't love viewing media on the things they agree with rather than disagree with? So I decided to go back to the beginning. Believe it or not, vaccine hesitancy has its roots in the 18th century when Sir Edward Jenner first invented the smallpox virus from cowpox. The story goes that he inoculated the eight-year-old son of his gardener with material taken from the cowpox lesion on a milkmaid's hand. After a mild fever and the expected local lesion, the child recovered after a few days. About two months later, Jenner inoculated the child on both arms with material from cases of smallpox, which is similar but a far more serious virus. And it had no effect. The boy was immune to smallpox. But there was much public criticism of the vaccination, claiming that it was unnatural and unchristian, and there was worry about imposition on personal freedoms. Sounds familiar, right? Fast forward to 1998. This is the study we all know and still hear about. The study was by Andrew Wakefield, who was a gastroenterologist at the time. It was published in The Lancet. It suggested a connection between the MMR vaccine and autism based on a sample obtained at a birthday party. Ultimately, after an investigation called into serious question both the research and Wakefield's ethics, he had never disclosed funding by lawyers hired by parents suing vaccine-producing companies, the study was retracted by The Lancet and he lost his medical license. In an interview with Megan Moran, an assistant professor in the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and a researcher who focuses on the communication of health information to the public, she said that the problem with this was that, quote, it was a study by a real scientist and published in a real medical journal. Folks who didn't like vaccines to begin with were able to point to a specific study. We later found out it was fabricated and withdrawn from the literature. But the fact that it was withdrawn can be twisted into the belief that the medical industry doesn't want the real knowledge to come out. Because of social media, the idea can be disseminated much more rapidly and more widely today. Wakefield, who has since moved to Austin, Texas, insists that he was the victim of a campaign by the medical establishment to discredit him and remains an active anti-vaccine speaker. Fast forward even more. In the first study of public health-related Facebook advertising published by the journal Vaccine in 2019, researchers showed that a small group of anti-vaccine ad buyers had successfully leveraged Facebook to reach targeted audiences. David Broniatowski, an associate professor of engineering management and systems engineering at George Washington University and the principal investigator of the study, said that, quote, by accepting the framing of vaccine opponents that vaccination is a political topic rather than one in which there is widespread public agreement and scientific consensus, Facebook perpetuated the false idea that there is even a debate to be had, end quote. Since then, the social media platform's efforts to improve transparency have actually led to the removal of ads promoting vaccination and communicating scientific findings, And later that year, Facebook stated that it would no longer recommend content that included misinformation about vaccines, and it would reject advertisements that carried misinformation. So how is an anti-vax movement even possible? Aren't children required to have vaccines? Those are reasonable questions to ask. There are exemptions that a family can make in order to remove the requirement of childhood vaccines. They're labeled non-medical, religious, or philosophical exemptions. In January 2015, a measles outbreak occurred in California, where an estimated 3.1% of kindergartners had non-medical exemption from receiving the MMR vaccine. The majority of cases occurred in children who had either not received the measles vaccine, 45%, or had unknown vaccination status, 38%. Of the cases in unvaccinated children, 43% of parents cited philosophical or religious objections to vaccines. An additional 40% of unvaccinated children could not receive the vaccine because they were too young. The AAP and American Medical Association have a policy against non-medical vaccine exemption. The AAP views non-medical exemptions to school-required immunizations as inappropriate for individual, public health, and ethical reasons, and advocates for their elimination. There are 45 states in Washington, D.C. that grant religious exemptions for people who have religious objections to immunizations. Currently, 15 states allow philosophical exemptions for those who object to immunizations because of personal, moral, or other beliefs. So, since I'm a new parent in North Carolina, I decided to look up what my local laws say. In North Carolina, you can claim religious or medical exemption. A medical exemption requires a letter from a physician licensed in the state. Note that it says physician, not nurse practitioner or licensed independent provider. A religious exemption is one in which a person should write a personal letter explaining the bona fide i.e. meaning genuine, not intending to deceive, beliefs. Statements of religious objection to immunization do not need to be notarized, signed by a religious leader, or prepared by an attorney. They do not need to be submitted to the state for review or approval. There is no exemption to these requirements for the case of a personal belief or philosophy of a parent or guardian not founded upon a religious belief. You should look up your state's requirement on your state's public health website or at the National Conference of State Legislatures website at www.ncsl.org. So who's refusing vaccines and why? The Periodic Survey of Fellows, PS number 66, conducted by the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2006 and 2013, found that vaccine refusers tend to be white and highly educated, and that opposition to vaccines fell in one of these three categories, vaccine safety, necessity of vaccines, and freedom of choice. They were things like, there are too many vaccines, worries about the development of autism, worries about vaccine additives, overload of the immune system. They may cause a child pain or cause them to be sick. Disease is more natural than a vaccine. Parents do not believe that the diseases being prevented are serious. Vaccine preventable diseases have disappeared. Parents have the right to choose what's right for their child and parents know what's best for their own child. They do not trust organized medicine or public health officials and they do not trust government health authorities or maybe they don't trust pharmaceutical companies. Those are really difficult arguments to tackle with a parent, but we know that the single most influential force for a vaccine-hesitant parent is a one-on-one conversation with a trusted healthcare provider. You can be the provider that parents talk to, or maybe you're not comfortable because you're in a subspecialty or episodic care like the emergency department or urgent care where you only see a patient once. You can start the conversation and recommend that they discuss it at greater length with their primary care provider. Thank them for asking, because after all, that's how we build trust and share information. You can't be expected to be a mind reader, and some parents might feel that this is a sensitive topic and feel embarrassed at their hesitancy on the issue. Validate their concerns, because as we saw in the lists from the periodic survey of fellows, those qualms with vaccines can feel very real and potentially overwhelming. Keep an open mind and be sensitive to the many factors at play while being sure to consider your own biases and approach your parent with empathy, respect, and a gracious attitude. The discussion of vaccine hesitancy counts as a crucial conversation to me, and if you haven't read Crucial Conversations yet, it should go on your must-read list as soon as possible. Tune in for another episode of the Peds NP when we apply the idea of crucial conversations to being pediatric providers. I digress. I digress. It's important to address their fears and concerns and share the science and statistics or pathophysiology of what's going on inside their child's immune system when it's possible. Take that extra five minutes to educate the family. You'll hear me say that over and over again. Those extra five minutes of education and personalized anticipatory guidance can save you hours and healthcare dollars on the other end. You'd be surprised at how much you caring about their child and sharing your knowledge can change their mind. Remind them that there is no one recommended schedule besides the one provided by the CDC. A lot of science has gone into that schedule, and it's based on the epidemiology and physiology of children. Researchers found that providers who provided a presumptive recommendation where they're informing parents that shots are due rather than a participatory recommendation asking what the parent thought about them, that they were more likely to accept vaccines. My pediatrician's office does not accept patients anymore who don't get vaccines according to the CDC schedule. So while some might view this approach as a little bit off, Keep in mind that the acceptance of vaccines has already happened in joining the practice. As I said before, I certainly do not want to villainize anti-vaccine parents. We should keep in mind that many, if not most, vaccine-hesitant parents are not opposed to vaccinating their children, but they are seeking guidance and information about issues. Parents may be unsure or uneasy about the idea of putting something new in their child's body. They might have concerns about possible adverse events like seizures that they have to be warned about, or expected side effects like fevers. My son has had a fever with every set of vaccines, and he's irritable and fussy for two days afterwards. If I were a non-healthcare parent, it might scare me too. So it's our job to provide a lot of the reassurance and the science that helps make this possible. The clear message parents should hear is that vaccines are safe and effective, and serious disease can occur if your child and family are not immunized. Fast forward even more. The coronavirus pandemic has led to a decrease in routine childhood immunizations, according to the CDC. Parental concerns about potentially exposing their children to COVID during well visits might contribute to some of these declines. As social distancing requirements get relaxed and we go back to normal life, children who are not protected by vaccines will be more vulnerable to diseases such as measles. What's more is that we need to assess parental acceptance or hesitancy regarding a potential coronavirus vaccine. There was an interesting article from the AAP News by Cody Messner in June of 2020 on why the COVID-19 vaccination development is so difficult. He poses the questions, quote, what will be the definition of an effective vaccine? Should reduction in mortality be the threshold, or should it be reduction of severe disease that requires hospitalization or prevention of infection? What degree of prevention will be acceptable? A 50% reduction, 75%, 90% reduction relative to placebo recipients, end quote. He goes on to describe all the difficulties of creating a vaccine for such a dangerous and novel disease such as COVID-19. As we near the fall and winter seasons, we need to be mindful of the seasonal flu and how this might change the landscape of the last six months we've just endured. What's more, we need to think about all the other supplies needed in order to make a COVID-19 vaccine possible. Syringes, needles, vials for the vaccine, alcohol swabs, gloves, Oh, and don't forget transportation and distribution, refrigeration in trucks, getting the vaccine to the highest risk groups, like elderly people who may have more limited access to care. And this doesn't even consider the politics of the issue. Since I'm recording this, I'm going to hold on any current statistics or events because of how fast new information is coming out and how infrequently I publish the podcast. So I'll encourage you to do the same as me and survey the science, support the safety of our communities, and follow the recommendations of our national organizations. I'd love to hear your thoughts and experiences on your conversations with vaccine-hesitant parents, immunizations, and the current state of affairs with COVID-19 or influenza. Comment below or send questions to thepeedsnp at gmail.com make sure to check out our show notes for references and resources. Again, I'm your host, Becky Carson, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, do it right for the kids. Take care.